Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. Good morning. We are so, so glad that you guys are here. God bless you. Welcome. A special welcome to those in the room and a big welcome to those who are joining us online from the comfort of your couch. We're glad you're with us as well. If you have your Bible, grab that. Join us. We're walking through the book of Acts together. And here we are in chapter 11. We've made a good bit of progress. And and we're talking about God's plan to grow his church, his unstoppable church we talked about. And, And the beauty is they had kind of a church growth strategy that up until last week, up until we got to Acts chapter 10, really only concentrated on Jewish people. Like that was their whole deal. They were gonna grow the church, but only to people who looked like them, right? But in God's timing, he set our friend Peter up to kind of break that mold. Peter was going to be the guy who was going to actually carry God's message to the ends of the earth because we know that it's supposed to go there. It's supposed to go to people of every tribe and tongue and nation, but we were really kind of putting our foot down, not carrying the gospel the way we're supposed to. Because of what we saw last week, now a lot of churches are popping up in non-Jewish areas, Gentile areas. And one of these is a big mega church that we're going to look at today, and it grew in the city of Antioch. This became actually just a huge church. Three different times in this passage, Luke mentions how big a church it is. So whatever church growth strategy they had, it was working. And, and is that a term that people use? Like outside the church, nobody talks about church growth strategy, do they? That's something we talk about here in the church quite a bit. But we talk about it not because we want to be a mega church, okay? It's not our goal here at OCC. We want to be a healthy church, And the reality is healthy things are supposed to grow. If something's healthy, you'll see it grow, right? And we feel God's given us a clear purpose that we want to see people get relationally connected. He's given us this clear mission that we're supposed to be on to make disciples who make disciples. He's given us this clear vision where we're going to join him where he's at work. And when those things happen, I think the church today here in the LC Valley should spread like the early church, right? And if that's going to happen, then it will grow numerically, but numbers aren't the biggest deal to us. I will quote one of my favorite pastors, Dr. Tony Evans, who's also a proud graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, and I do a horrible Tony Evans impression, so if you're a big fan, but Tony Evans says this, he says, numbers is people, and it's true, (laughs) and that's the reality. Like, we don't care about numbers so much except for the fact that numbers are people that God cares deeply about and wants to see grow. And so a lot of times when we talk about growth here at OCC, we're talking about individual Christ followers' growth. Are we growing? Are we maturing to become more and more of what God wants for us? That's part of the DNA, right? That's how he's made us. We're supposed to glorify him, seek hard after him. And so one of the things that that just really frustrates me that I see in the church in America and honestly in the church across the world is churches moving away from a church growth strategy that's focusing on the Lord and instead kind of fall and pray to marketing. And I'm a big fan of marketing. I have a marketing degree before I got a master's in biblical studies, but but I I don't think the church should fall prey to that. I've seen churches. You've probably seen churches as well. And it just scares me. They get away from teaching the Bible, and they'll teach a six-week series on some popular movie or something like that. 
This is no lie. It wasn't here when God had us back in Missouri. There was a big, big church on the other side of the state, and they had a raffle. <laughs> and, and if they met a certain attendance number, they were going to give away a car. That, that, was how, that was how they were getting people to come to church. I don't think that's the right church growth strategy, right? I want to show a little video clip from a movie. I haven't seen this movie. I will say this. It does look funny to me. I'm afraid to watch it. I'm afraid it's going to make me either really mad or it's going to make me cry, which is not hard to do, and you know that. But, 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 but I'm afraid I might just cry about how sad it is. But, but this is a movie. It's called Church People about a church trying to market itself instead of glorifying Jesus. Let's watch this together. To get back to the gospel, the problem is you're trying to get your message across. Uh, the gospel. Right, right, right. And ain't nobody listening to that. A good Friday and Easter. I need something big. Amen. Bigger than the resurrection. Bigger than anything we've ever done. National headlines. Preach on the death and resurrection of Jesus. An actual crucifixion. Uh-oh. By placing the nails through your palms in the right place, we hope to avoid major nerve damage. And that was the look on Brenton's face when we pitched the idea. We said, hey, you'll get up there. No, no. <laughs> Hear me on this. We're not going to do that, right? I don't think that's what the church is supposed to be doing. What are we going to do? We're going to keep following the purpose, mission, and vision he's given us. And every week when we get together, we're going to worship in song, and we're going to open God's word, and we're going to study, and that's why we're in this DNA series. And so, so we're looking at this church in Antioch, how it grew, how it developed, and we actually kind of got introduced to where this was going last week when Peter learned that he was supposed to actually go out and accept the Gentiles. He got that lesson, and he tried to teach it to the early church, and, and some of them got it, and some of them didn't, but he made that strong case. He's like, well, those guys received the Holy Spirit just like we did, Right? They get the Holy Spirit by professing faith just like we did. So why shouldn't the gospel message go to those people, to the ends of the earth? And so this was an important concept. And again, the church was supposed to now move beyond just accepting the Gentiles. If you have an outline there with you. Now they're going to press forward and they're going to reach the Gentiles. Not all, but some. If you don't have your Bible with you, join me here on the Sky Bible. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19, Dr. Luke writes this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And you remember we studied that scattering, that persecution just a while back in Acts chapter 8. And so since that time, like 10 years have passed, and some folks are being obedient to this command to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, except they weren't all obedient, right? What does the rest of verse 19 tell us? Speaking the word to no one except Jews. The verse started out so promising. <laughs> what went wrong, right? The church is fi finally starting to expand the way Jesus told them to. It's going to people of every tribe and tongue and nation, but there were still some Jewish people who were putting their foot down. They said, I am only going to go share the gospel with people who look like me or act like me or talk like me, have the same cultural background as me. Now, that's a huge miss, and we still see people struggling with this today. But, but the beauty is God's plan for his church will not be stopped. We saw that last week. No purpose of God can be thwarted. So look at verse 20. But there were some of them, not all, but praise the Lord, a faithful few, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also. They talked with people who didn't look like them. 
they talked with Gentile people and they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Let me put up a map and I wanna show you exactly where these folks are going because a lot of us may not be familiar. Jerusalem is down here, the red dot, right? And Jerusalem is in this area of Judea. I picked the wrong map and that's my fault. I had one that showed Judea and then Samaria right above that. And if you remember in Acts chapter one, verse eight, the idea was that you're gonna spread the gospel starting in Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. So it's supposed to start there in Jerusalem and then kind of spread out around Jericho. And then it was supposed to go just a little north to Samaria. And do you remember why Samaria in particular? Because the Jewish people, the Samaritans, they didn't like each other. They were fighting all the time. It was Hatfields and McCoys. It was Seahawks fans and Brenton. It was groups that didn't, <laughs> groups that didn't like each other, right? But, so that's why they were going to spread there. And then it was supposed to go even further. And you see this little area right under Beirut is Tyre and Sidon. That's the area of Phoenicia that kind of extends all along the Mediterranean coast. And so the gospel's spreading. It's moving. It spreads even to that big island there, Cyprus. It's about 60 miles off the coast. And then if you just keep going north, eventually right up there at the top of the Mediterranean Sea, you come to Antioch. That's how far they've gone at this point in time. Antioch is like 200 miles from Jerusalem. 200 miles doesn't seem like much to us, but when you walk everywhere, 200 miles is a long way to go, right? Now, Antioch was a big, big city, okay? It was the capital of Syria at the time. And the world population at that time was around like two. That was everybody, right? 250 million people. In that time, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Only 250 million people total, half a million of them lived in Antioch. This was a big, big place. And so it acted just like a big city today. It was kind of the cultural center. And it was the political center. And it was the religious center. And it was the commercial center. And that's the area now where these missionaries are going out to. And they're going out and they seem to have one of only two approaches. One is I'm going to go out and only talk to Jewish people. And the other one is the right approach. <laughs> I'm going to go out and talk to everybody. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. And here's the thing where I want to give these folks just a little bit of pass. Because it couldn't be clear in scripture what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go carry the message to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And even knowing that, a lot of folks weren't doing it, Right? Don't raise your hand, but, but don't we know a lot of things that would be good for us that we don't do? I was talking to somebody here in the church the other day, and, and I don't remember how we got on this particular line of thought, but I, I mentioned I'd been the senior pastor here by God's grace just for like a little over eight and a half years. And this girl looked at me and she goes, it seems like a lot longer than that. I don't think she meant it as a compliment. <laughs> and I'm not keeping hard stats on this, but I'll give you just a little inside baseball. I try to work two things into every sermon that I preach. If this is your church. You've heard these over and over, I guarantee it. I bet I've said this in 95% of the sermons I preach. I try to always make sure to say that we are supposed to die to ourselves to live for Christ. I try and say that every time. And I try to make sure that I say salvation is by grace through faith not of works. I, I try to work some variation of the gospel in to virtually every message. So I'm standing up here, 360 out of the 375 times I preached, saying we got to die to ourselves to live for Christ. How are we doing? I'm preaching it, and I don't do it well. So I'm going to give these folks a little bit of a pass for not doing the thing that God tells them to do, but they know the right thing to do. God worked through Peter last week and he kind of just kicked the door open to carrying the gospel everywhere. And some people saw that wide open door and said, man, I'm going to run through it. 
And a lot of people didn't. A lot of people are like us. But some of these faithful missionaries, praise the Lord, were people who were from outside the camp. They weren't Hebrew of Hebrews. They weren't Jewish people. So their DNA was actually right now to go to these Gentile areas. They'd been born in Gentile areas themselves. They spoke the predominant Gentile language, right? That makes them great candidates to be disciples who would make Gentile disciples of Christ, right? Verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with these people, these missionaries, and a great number who believed. Who are these believers? There's these Gentiles in Antioch. A great number of them turned to the Lord. So God blessed their efforts, and now Luke gets to brag about the size of this church in Antioch. Well, why did it happen? Remember what we said last week? What happens when we stop putting our foot down? And we get into that rescue position, and then God can do what? He can carry us a really long way. That's his desire to carry the plan for his church. He's going to carry it a really long way. So the hand of the Lord is with these missionaries, and and the Gentiles start accepting Christ. So... We're following along with the pattern. We're supposed to accept the Gentiles. We're supposed to reach out to the Gentiles. But there's more. And here we encounter a recognizable Bible character. He's a guy who doesn't put his feet down, so God moves him forward. And he's going to encourage this Gentile church that met in Antioch. Verse 22. The report of this, the report of what? The fact that the Gentile church was growing. It was blossoming, right? That traveled fast back in the day before the internet because of gossip. We know gossip still works today. This good report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, I love this. The good news comes all the way back down to Jerusalem, and they hear about this, and they're like, man, let's send one of our very best guys. Let's send Barnabas. And they do this on purpose. It has to be on purpose. And Barnabas is going to go, and he's going to foster unity, right? He's going to take that big journey and he's going to remind this brand new church, you guys aren't in this alone. Like you probably feel pretty isolated. You're a long way from Jerusalem and and you don't have any Jewish people here. It's an entirely brand new Gentile church, but you're still part of God's plan, right? He's coming along to encourage them that way. He's going to pump them up because being the church is hard work. Again, I don't know how much you guys think about that, but, but this is a church growth thought, The early church in Jerusalem, just from the standpoint of being a church, had a tremendous advantage. Do you remember why? They had all the apostles. (laughs) They had all the guys there. Like their their staff was loaded. Peter was the senior pastor and John was the connections pastor and Andrew did men's ministry. I don't know what roles they had, but, but they were all there in the church, right? It made it very easy to find leaders. Well, this Gentile church over in Antioch has none of that. They have zero apostles. They have zero seasoned church leaders. So the established church in Jerusalem says, well, I'll tell you what, we'll send you one of our very best guys. They send Barnabas. He's like a gift from the church. And it's an especially fitting gift because of his DNA. God has wired Barnabas to be an encourager. Barnabas didn't show up and want to take over the church, right? He's not there to be the lead pastor of the church. He's there just to encourage what God is doing. That's kind of his spiritual gift. We have folks like that here in the church at Orchards. It's amazing. I hope you know some of those people. The very first person I always think of when I think of great encouragers is my friend Heather Schwartz. Some of you don't know Heather very well. <laughs> because the, the reality is, if like if you knew Heather, that's the best joke I've ever told. She, 
She was the one who, when I said I'd been here eight and a half years, she said, it seems longer. Um, Heather, Heather's real gift is she encourages you by just ripping your feet out from underneath you. Like if she likes you, she will cut you to the ground mercilessly. It's hilarious. I, this is a true story as well. I had a lady come up to me in the church the other day. She said, I think Heather's mad at me. And I was like, why? She paid me a compliment, she said. And I, <laughs> must mean she doesn't like me, right? That, that's just kind of the way Heather rolls. And, and so there, there's, it's hard to discern sometimes, but I love Heather. And I got her permission to use her as an example. She's a phenomenal encourager. She really is. And that's Barnabas' gift here as well. He's a great encourager. And, and so here he is doing his dream job in this church, and he's perfect for a few reasons. And the first is he's got the right cultural match. Do you remember when we first ran into Barnabas? It was back in Acts chapter 4. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas. He got this cool nickname because he was so encouraging. His name means son of encouragement. But look, he's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. So he's not like all the other Jewish guys, right? He's a Hellenistic Jew. That makes him more able to relate with the church in Antioch. He, he's like them. He spoke their language. He's from the same hometown as the founders of the church. So he's not going to roll in and they're going to go, who's this outsider? Right? They, they know him. So the culture of his DNA was important, but also he's just a good guy. His character is very important here. And jump out of order just for a second. Look at verse 24. It says, For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That's a really solid endorsement that Luke gives to Barnabas there. And that's super important, right? Because this sending church, the church in Jerusalem, knew that Barnabas was going to go and encourage people to do what? To follow the Lord. Not follow him. Barnabas wasn't looking in for any followers, right? He didn't want to become a star pastor. This part is hard, honestly, sometimes as, as the leadership here at the church talks about church growth strategies and things. We live in this age of technology, and so it's easy to hear a podcast from a, a megachurch pastor or a famous evangelist or something. We can read their book. We can hear sermons of theirs. And, and you fight this sometimes to go, well, let's just do what they did. They tried this thing. It worked over there. Let's just try and plug that into our church. And I don't think that's the way we're supposed to do it. <laughs> I think we're supposed to figure out what God wants us to do. And, and so here, I love this. Luke doesn't include any methods that Barnabas uses. He just says Barnabas is a character guy. People will like him. They'll follow him. So he has the right culture. He has the right character. And he has the right qualifications. We just said he's an encourager. That's an incredible gift. That's how he got that great nickname. He was so good at encouraging, they, that's what they decided to call him. So he shows up in verse 23 sharing encouraging words. It says, when he came and he saw the grace of God, I love that, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, I do have a question on this one, right? Barnabas shows up, and he starts meeting these people, and he says, this is wonderful. Glory goes to God. He says he witnessed the grace of God. So let me just ask that question. Is God's grace visible or invisible? How do you witness the grace of God? The only way I know is to, to know people, to observe people and look at their changed lives. If you have somebody who used to be a mocker and now they're praising God, if you have somebody who used to be so far away from the Lord and now they live this life sold out to the Lord, 
If you see change in somebody's life like that, it's incredible. That's a sign of God's grace. How many times have you done that? You run into somebody who used to be prideful and now they're humble. You're like, well, that's the grace of God. So Barnabas shows up here in Antioch and he sees this. He starts hearing the stories and he rejoices. Why? Because now he has all these brand new brothers and sisters in Christ. He didn't care about their nationality. He didn't care about which language they spoke, the color of their skin, right? He's just encouraging these new believers. He wants them to continue in their walk with God. That's what he does. That's what he's made of. Church could always use more Barnab- Barnabai. What's the plural of Barnabas? <laughs> more people like Barnabas, right? <laughs> because we always need encouragement. So he produces two clear results here. First, more and more people wind up professing faith. Luke mentions that several times. But also, as the church is growing, as healthy people do, they need more leaders, right? And Barnabas has an inside scoop on that. That's the second consequence of sending him. He's going to go get some help. That's what we see in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Hop back up to the map just for a second. You might not have caught Tarsus earlier. But right there at Antioch where there was, if you just go around that little lip there in the Mediterranean Sea, a little north, a little west, you'll go over to Tarsus, and that is the hometown of Saul, right? And remember, Barnabas and Saul, they've got a little background together. And that's why Barnabas is going to go get him. When we were first introduced to Barnabas, really, in his role in Scripture, do you remember what he was doing? All the disciples were afraid of Saul. He'd been Saul who was, you know, overseeing the murdering of Christians, and now he says, no, I'm a brand new guy, I'm a changed guy. And they're like, we don't believe it. And Barnabas came alongside and said, no, he's a good guy. So Barnabas is an encourager, even in that instance. But he knows Saul, and Saul is on record as being the guy who's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so here's Barnabas in this growing church of Gentiles, and he's like, hey, you know who'd love to hang out here? I bet Saul would. And again, this is part of Barnabas' DNA. He doesn't worry about bringing in another leader to the church. He's not worried about Saul stepping over him or taking his place. He could care less. He just wants to rejoice over people meeting Jesus. And so he brings Saul on board. I like that quite a bit. But it says he goes to find him, and that apparently was not as easy as we might think. How hard is it to find somebody sometimes? We play, you know, hide and seek, and and especially if you play with little kids, it's easy. I don't know if you've played hide and seek with a real little kid. They'll hide for like three seconds, and then they stop out and go, here I am. They want to be found, right? But, But the word that Luke uses here, it was hard to find Saul, apparently. This word that he uses in the Greek means diligent searching. It's the same word that Luke used. Do you remember this in the Christmas story we always talk about when Jesus got away from his parents? They're coming back from the temple in Jerusalem and Mary and and Joseph just all of a sudden have lost Jesus. And you're like, how could they have done that? Well, it happens, right? And they had to go diligently seek him out. Imagine if you lost a kid. How hard would you be seeking? That's how hard Barnabas had to look to find Saul. Why is it so hard? It's like playing Where's Waldo? Where's Saul? Why is this so tricky? Well, again, we got to remember, it's been like seven years since the last time we saw Saul. That was the end of Acts chapter 9. Do you remember? He, He was run out of Jerusalem. He went to his hometown of Tarsus. And so there's a time factor here. There's certainly a distance factor. Could anything else play into why it's so hard to find Saul? I can't prove this, but but if you correlate some scripture, this passage is really on my heart. This week, Paul says this to the church at Philippi later in his ministry. He said, indeed, I count everything 
as loss. It says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What if the everything is lost for Saul included his family? What if when he gave his life to Christ, what if when he became a Christ follower, his Jewish family disowned him, wrote him out of the will? And so now Barnabas all of a sudden can't go to Tarsus and, and find out where Saul's house was and go knock on the door, and there's Saul laying on the couch watching Netflix, right? Because he got run out of his house. That would make it much harder to find him. I don't know if that's entirely true or not, but what we know is Luke says he had to desperately seek Saul. And eventually he found him. Look at verse 26. And when Barnabas found him, he brought Saul to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church. And they taught a great many people. And this is awesome. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Term we still use today, right? You know, this is one of only three instances in the Bible where we see that word, Christian. You'd think it might be more, right? But there's a reason it's not in the Bible very often. And it's because that term Christian literally means those who belong to Christ. But when they first used it, it wasn't a compliment. It had negative connotation. They were making fun of them. Oh, those guys who belong to Christ. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not. I don't use the term Christian a whole lot because there's, there's negative connotation to it. There's baggage with it, sadly. You talk about Christianity, you talk about Christians, and people go, oh, yeah, I know Christians. They're so judgmental. I know Christians, they don't like this and they don't like this. You know? and, and so I use the term Christ follower almost exclusively. But they really are supposed to mean the same thing, right? But that's why we don't see it that often in the Bible. It had some of this baggage attached to it. It shouldn't. Those who belong to Christ should be a badge of honor, right? And the first church to bear this name was not the church down in Jerusalem with all the apostles in it. It was this Gentile church in Antioch that was encouraged by Barnabas, taught by Saul. I love that. So some of this we see God's plan working, right? The early church was accepting the Gentiles. The early church had started to reach out to the Gentiles. At least Barnabas, we hope it was a few more, were actually encouraging the Gentiles. God still had more for them. We see this in verses 27 to 30. The early church now actually started fellowshipping with the Gentiles. They were hanging out together. They had one another's backs. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine all over the world. Luke throws in this information. That took place in the days of Claudius. Now there were actually several prophets who made this long journey. We only get the name of one guy, Agabus, and we're going to see him again in Acts chapter 21. But he stands up here in Antioch, and, and he says, man, there's going to be this great famine, okay? Gives this prophecy, and Luke adds in, it'll be in the reign of Claudius, and that just gives us a timeline, because Claudius reigned from AD 41 to AD 54. And if you study some history back in that day, there were four recorded famines that occurred. Two of them were in Rome, one of them was in Greece, and one was in Judea. That's where Jerusalem is, right? And the one that impacted Judea was severe. It was especially severe. And we know this again. Got to do just a little bit of work. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he wrote that that famine was so bad, a lot of people died. A lot of people died because they didn't have money for food. So now we have some context. So you go back to verse 28. 
Agabus warns everybody, here's what's going to happen, but he doesn't tell everybody what to do about it. What would we do? If we heard there was going to be a famine here in the LC Valley, according to our nature, what would we do? And I'm not trying to pass judgment on anybody here, but I think a lot of times what we do is like, well, I better start storing up some food, right? I better start stockpiling. I'm going to take care of my own. And I get that. That makes sense. But that's not what these people do. That's not what this brand new church in Antioch does. Verse 29. So the disciples determined, the folks here in this church in Antioch, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Here's this brand new church, this huge mega church. They hear Agabus's prophecy about this dire famine to come, and their first impulse is not to hoard. It's to give. Like, man, we better take a big old collection, right? And here's what they're thinking. And again, got to correlate all this together. They're like, man, wow, a famine would be really hard on the people down in Judea. Well, a famine's really hard on everybody. Why would a famine be really hard on the people down in Judea? Do you remember back to Acts chapter 2 when the early church started? Do you remember what they did? They put all their stuff together. They gave to everyone as they had need. So they didn't stockpile themselves. They had been sacrificial for so long, they weren't sitting on anything. Now, here's this brand new church in this huge city, and they are financially well off. They're doing great. And so they see the church back in Jerusalem that is not. But of course, the fellowship aspect, what I think is so cool, the church in Jerusalem didn't have any money. What did they have? People. They sent Barnabas. It's not truly an exchange. It's not dollar for dollar. But, but you look at churches and you go, what's our strength? What could we give? And then if we don't have a strength in an area, isn't another church supposed to come alongside us and encourage us, fellowship with us in that? I think that's such an incredible picture of being the church. Barnabas and Saul were deep in the middle of this. This is fantastic. So the church in Antioch says, we'll take this collection, we're going to send it down to our brothers and sisters in Judea. Verse 30, they did so, sending it to the elders, what they send, this pile of money, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Took the two guys probably they trusted the most, the two guys who knew their way to Jerusalem, said, here, take this money. Now, I want to throw this in because this doesn't impact our story so much, but it's kind of cool to me in the same way we heard the first Christians called Christians there in verse 26. This is the first mention of the term elder in Scripture as it relates to church leadership. Talks about old people in the Bible a whole lot. <laughs> There's not that elder. Right? This means something else. As, as God's church is moving forward, which is what we're seeing throughout our study of Acts, we can observe this. When the early church formed in Jerusalem... They had all the leaders, right? They had all the apostles. Those guys became the church leaders. What happened as churches were planted and grew from there? Were they literally just going to take and send an apostle? <laughs> you get an apostle and you get an apostle. Check under your seat. You'll have an apostle. You know, it, it isn't like that, right? As these new churches grew, they had to form their own leadership. And this actually, I believe, gives us the scriptural model that we use here at OCC for finding Holy Spirit-appointed leaders in your church. That's kind of what that elder term means. Paul goes through, if you read through Paul's, especially the pastoral epistles, he talks about this process of putting leadership in your church. And again, the term elder isn't sacred. We operate kind of as an elder-led church, but we call our elders a ministry council. Doesn't matter what you call them. Those guys who serve in that capacity function in the way Paul talks about. In Timothy and Titus, they're Holy Spirit-appointed guys. 
So I don't know how familiar you are with this or not. We have guys who serve on our board, and if, if a big decision comes up, a financial decision or there, there's a theology thing or heresy or whatever, we take that to that board, and the entire board has to be unanimous before we will move forward. If we have seven guys, you know, whatever, we can't have something decided in this church on a vote of four to three. Because in that group, we're saying all those guys are Holy Spirit appointed. So if something comes up, what are we going to say? Well, these four guys are more Holy Spirit appointed than these three guys? No, it doesn't work that way. We make sure everybody is together. Now, I'll tell you this. Sometimes it makes decisions take longer. But that way we're confident we're not just doing stuff under our own strength. We're hearing from the Lord through the Holy Spirit. And so that's the process that we're trying to use here because that's the process that we see in Scripture. And so I want to show you a picture of our ministry council guys. I don't know that you guys know a lot of these guys, all except for that top one. Good-looking fellas there. Um, You need to know these guys. These are the guys who are praying for you. These are the guys who are shepherding the church. These are the guys who, when we come to those big decisions, we're in there together praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us. They want to know you. They want you to know them. So, so I say all that to, to try and help you see. And, and again, I don't know that you ever sit and think about this, but, but we have an organizational chart here at the church, and I'm not at the top of it. Just so that you understand that, God is at the top of it. He has to be. It's his church. But then even underneath God, it's not me. It's not the pastors. It's these guys. It's the ministry council guys. I serve what is called first among equals. I'm just an equal voice in there. I don't get to override decisions of the ministry council. I just lead the meetings, right? But in that, that's how our organizational structure works. It's God, then the ministry council. And then the ministry council kind of sets the parameters, the the playing field, and then the staff is right underneath them, and they do all the stuff, right? The staff and the employees here at the church, they, they actually work through all the things that we've got going on. But that's how our hierarchy works, and it's really because of what we see in this passage, And again, none of that is a takeaway from what we're studying here in Acts 11, but we just don't talk about that a whole lot, and I wanted you to to hear a little bit about church government today. The the big takeaway here in Acts chapter 11 is not about our elder body. It's about this Christian fellowship to share in common with, and that's what the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch did right here. When the early church in Antioch was born, they were poor in leadership. They were rich in money. The church in Jerusalem was poor in money but rich in leadership, so they swapped. It's a beautiful picture, a real blessing. So when the famine then came to that church, they were equipped in Jerusalem because of their brothers and sisters, because of God's plan, because of the DNA of guys like Barnabas and Saul. And to me, one of the neatest things is not the spiritual leadership for the money exchange. It was the fact that the church in Antioch was what? Gentile. And the church in Jerusalem was Jewish. And before, those groups hadn't got along so well. And here, now, what are they doing? They're fellowship. They're sharing in common with. It's a great, great picture. And it explains why God gave this mission, that we were supposed to accept the Gentiles and then reach out to the Gentiles and then encourage the Gentiles and then fellowship with them because that's the way you're going to be a healthy church. And that model still applies today. So when we see people who aren't like us in this world, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to accept them and reach out to them and encourage them. And then when they become Christ followers, fellowship with them. That's the pattern. Let me close with this. In the Greek islands, if you ever get a chance to visit, you can go to the home of a man named Hippocrates. Are we familiar with that name? 
Let me put it this way. If you have to take the Hippocratic Oath in medicine, that's Hippocrates, father of modern medicine. Apparently, in his home there in Greece, there's a tree that he planted that is supposedly 2,400 years old. My family and the Jenkins, we went hiking up yesterday to see the big cedar up at Elk River. I mean, you look at a big tree like that. Apparently, this tree there in Greece, 2,400 years old. The trunk is massive, but hollow. <laughs> it's basically just bark, right? This tree isn't healthy. It's got a few long, stringy branches, but the branches don't even support themselves. They've got two-by-fours propped up all along the way. And the branches sprout a few leaves, and this huge tree produces a handful of olives every year. So there's a question I guess you have to ask. <laughs> Is it really an olive tree? It doesn't really fill the function of an olive tree, right? An olive tree is supposed to produce a ton of olives. If you go to that area, there's, I mean, this is obviously something they're famous for there in Greece, huge fields, groves of these olive trees that are producing buckets and buckets of olives. But people go and nobody goes to look at the, the producing trees. They go and look at this real old tree, right? And there's something cool about history, and I, I get that. I understand that. But, but the purpose of the tree, what it's supposed to accomplish, it doesn't do anymore. So here's my question. Do we know Christ followers? Do we know Christians? Do we know churches that would call themselves Christian churches that are not fulfilling the purpose? That are not on mission? That's a sad thought to me. Because <laughs> that's not what God wants for his church. What does he want? He wants us to be relationally connected. He wants us to be making disciples who make disciples. And he wants that because then we'll join him in his work and those healthy churches will grow. We'll produce a whole bunch of fruit because we're not putting our foot down and getting in God's way. Amen. That's what God wants for the church. I'm just positive. And I'm so, so thankful that God is working through you guys to do that here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chance to open your word, to hear this story, to be challenged by being obedient, to following you hard in this mission, this purpose, this vision. God, help us to be a healthy church here at Orchards Community Church. Not, not so we can pat ourselves on the back, not so that we get any glory out of this, God, but so that you get all the glory that you're so worthy of. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.